Well, if you uh, would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Today we're going to be considering Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. As you turn there, um, of course we recognize that today is Mother's Day, and the occasion kind of got me thinking about celebrating Mother's Day or Father's Day, for that matter, any, any real gift-giving celebration at home where we, as little kids, had an occasion to give a gift to mom or dad. And I found, especially as a little kid, ultimately what I was doing is I was taking their money and getting them something with it, right? They really ended up buying their own gift. And when you're little and you've got no money of your own, that's really the only way that you can give gifts to people, is if mom and dad pay for it. And so with mom and dad's money, I was giving back to them something that I hoped that they would enjoy. Uh, apparently, as a kid, I really thought my dad enjoyed ties. I was an expert at giving ties as a child. Maybe some of you have been either on the giving or receiving end of an endless amount of ties. Um, with Mother's Day, uh, perhaps we've given flowers, perhaps we've given chocolate, perhaps we've given something homemade, perhaps we've given an extra amount of chores to give mom some much-needed respite, but whatever it is, inevitably as children, we give back to our parents from that which we have been given. And uh, with that in mind today, with the passage that we look at in Matthew 25, we're going to see how a master has provided everything that his servants need to do the work that he has assigned to them. So look with me in Matthew 25. We're going to read verses 14 to 30 and consider what is often called the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Lord, we need spiritual eyes and ears to see and understand your word in truth. And so we ask for that to be granted to us today. For clarity in my speaking, that I would communicate the truth of your word, and that only the truth of your word would remain. Your word brings life, and so we pray that it would go forward to us and through us for your glory and for the growth of your kingdom. Be pleased to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive into the text today, I want to tell you on the front end how the sermon is organized. Uh, we're going to spend some time going over just a few contextual things to make sure that we're on the same page regarding 
uh, historically what may be going on to help us understand the parable. And uh, from there, we're going to walk through the parable itself, simply trying to understand what it says. And after that, we're going to have two main points of application. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in that first point of application. So if your stomach is rumbling and we're still in point one, not to worry, we will, we will move through that rather quickly towards the end. So some context, the parable itself, two main points of application to kind of get your head wrapped around how we're going to go through the text today. So contextually, what's going on? Uh, a, a reminder about where we are in Matthew. Michael tries to kind of set up each week where we are to ground us in how to properly understand the text that we're in. And we want to do that again today with the parable of the talents. If you go back in your Bible, just one chapter over to Matthew 24, remember the disciples have asked Jesus a two-part question about the destruction of the temple and about his return at the end of the age. When, when will these things be, referring to the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming? Second coming, return at the end of the age. So there's this two-part question that Jesus handles in two parts. And uh, he begins to answer the part about his return in Matthew 24, 36 and following. And then he's going to conclude chapter 24 with the first in a series of three parables about what it means to be faithful and ready for Jesus uh, while we wait for his return. And then following the parable that we look at today, next week we're going to see more explicit, explicit teaching from Jesus about his return. So last week, if we look at the immediate context, uh, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 25, commonly called the parable of the ten virgins, uh, Pastor Michael last week encouraged us to think about our own readiness for the return of Christ in terms of Holy Spirit-empowered, joy-filled, enduring obedience to Jesus. That's how he helps us to think about readiness for the return of Christ from that parable. And so we're going to take that idea and we're going to apply it to the parable today. This parable is one about faithful working. If last week was about faithful waiting, today's parable is about faithful working. And I think we'll see that Jesus wants his followers to understand basically three things. One, I'm going away. Two, I'm coming back. Three, I'm leaving you with work to do while I'm gone. I'm going away. I'm coming back. I'm leaving you with work to do while I'm gone. And that, that kind of sets up the context. This is in the context of the return of Christ and readiness for that day. There's also some terminology that I think we'll do well to dig into a little bit to help us understand this parable. And the first one is the idea of servants. Uh, the word simply means slaves or servants. And the point that Jesus is going to make about his people in the parable, it is necessary for us to understand servanthood for what it is. We're not employees, we're not hired workers, we are servants. And that is going to be important to the point that Jesus makes about this. The Lord is our master, we belong to him. And so that means everything for how we understand what we have and what we do with it, because we are servants. And therefore, as servants, we are stewards. And if you don't get stewardship and you don't get servanthood, you're not going to get this parable. So keep that in mind. Not employees, but servants who have a stewardship from their master. Another term that we need to deal with is the term talents. Not the English word talent that we would use like someone is talented at something or skilled at something. Uh, a talent, when we use it in this sense, is an amount of money equivalent to 20 years wages for a laborer, basically a life's wages for a laborer. And the last time we heard about talents was back in Matthew 18. Uh, if you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, a servant had this massive amount of debt. He, was, he owed his master 10,000 talents. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. This is an absurd amount of money, 10,000 talents. The idea was to emphasize the amount of this man's debt to his master when compared to the relative small amount of debt that was owed to him. You remember, he refused to forgive uh, the guy who owed him a few hundred denarii, denarii excuse me, when he had been forgiven 10,000 talents. He was forgiven, to use modern equivalents, a bazillion dollar debt. And he chokes a guy out over a few thousand bucks. 
So when you hear talents, you need to think large amounts of money. You may have a, a footnote in your Bible that uh, says that talents are an amount of money worth upwards of $1,000. That, that is an understatement, to say the least. That's like saying Michael Jordan was a decent basketball player. When you hear talent, think massive amounts of money left in the hands of a few slaves, a few servants. So the first slave is entrusted with five talents. That's five lifetimes of wages for a laborer. Enormous sums of money are in view. You need to also understand that to understand this parable. And the last contextual thing that we need to give brief consideration to is the economic systems of the day. Now, I have to confess, I am not an expert on the economic systems of today, let alone the ancient uh, Near Eastern economic systems. But um, suffice it to say that we're not dealing with sophisticated and modern financial systems. There's no FDIC insuring your investments. There's no Wall Street. There's no Bitcoin. Uh, there's no Roth IRAs. This is ancient Near Eastern banking, not modern banking. So we need to take off the, the modern lenses to understand some of this parable. And we'll see that later on in terms of the, or excuse me, the servants being willing to risk, or in the case of the wicked servant, not to risk anything for the sake of fidelity to the master. Um, the one who buried the talent in the ground did the safest and least risky thing that he could do. Sticking the money under your mattress or in a hole in the ground was the least risky thing you could do to protect an amount of money. It wouldn't grow, but it was the safest way to keep it from being lost. We don't think in those terms, right? In our day and time, we think of at least stick it in a savings account where it's insured by the federal government and will bear at least a small amount of interest. Burying the money in the ground was the least risky, safest course of action for keeping that money intact not faithfully stewarding it as the master had directed, but keeping it intact. It would not be lost. So understanding something of the banking systems of the day is necessary for us to understand this parable. So to sum all that up, Jesus wants us to be thinking about life in light of his return, and he does so with a parable about an uber-rich master leaving tons of money in the hands of a few slaves and then evaluating him, them when he returns based on what they did with what they had. So now that we've got the context in mind, let's look at the text itself and see how the parable unfolds. So down in verse 14, if you look there, it will be like a man going on a journey. What will be like? It will be like. How do we understand what, what it is that he's referring to? You need to go back to chapter 25, verse 1, as the introduction to the second of these three parables is also used as the introduction for this parable. 25.1, then the kingdom, heaven, kingdom of heaven will be like. Jesus uses that heading to introduce this parable. It will be like. The kingdom of heaven will be like. What? A man going on a journey. He... He calls his servants together. He says, huddle up, guys. I'm, I'm headed out. And it says he entrusts them with his property in amounts that vary according to their ability. One of them gets five. The second one gets two. The third gets one. We're not told explicitly what instructions he gave them. We're not precisely told how their abilities differed as to justify the different amounts of money. This is a parable, and those details are of uh, little consequence for us. That is not the point that Jesus is going to make. What matters is we know that they are given different amounts that vary according to their ability. The master goes on a long journey, and they are going to be judged when he returns on whether or not they faithfully stewarded the money that they had. So now the main action of the parable. He calls the servants together. He heads out. He's entrusted them with his money. Look at verse 16. Apparently, the first two servants do not waste a second. The first one goes at once and begins trading and increasing the master's assets. The five turns into ten, and likewise the two turns into four. How did they do that? How did they turn five talents into ten and two to four? Enormous amounts of money that are doubled. And there's no GameStop stock that they can buy low and sell high when the market's right, remember? That's one of the reasons why we need to understand the context because 
If you know that you don't have the stock market to cash it all in on, you know that something else must have been done for the money to be doubled. They would have had to do entrepreneurial work. They would have had to do things like start businesses, take risks. They would have had to work diligently at it, and they go and do it immediately. There may be a, a translation that says that they put the money to work, and uh, I really think it's the servants who are the ones that are working, not the money. The money is a tool that the master has given to them, but the servants are the ones who have gone out and they are working diligently. You get a sense of their eagerness to honor and please the master by their instant obedience. Now, as parents, we know the difference between begrudging, slow, half-hearted obedience, and first-time, glad obedience. My kids will tell you they know the joy that it brings me, not for them simply to obey when given a task, but to do it joyfully and immediately. And they know that that is a clear path to reward. Joyful, immediate obedience puts us on the path to reward. That is something we practice in our family. We encourage first-time, glad obedience. So to define it this way, obedience is doing the right thing with the right attitude, the right way, right away. Doing the right thing with the right attitude, the right way, right away. And the servants get to work. They eagerly go out at once. They're trading. They're investing. They're doing whatever it takes to faithfully steward the master's money and to increase his assets. Look at the third servant, on the other hand. Verse 18. The one who had the one talent dug a hole and hid the money in the ground. He buries the talent in the ground. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. The third servant, for reasons we're going to see in a moment, takes the path of least resistance, and he just puts the money in the ground. No risk, no effort, no diligence, no eagerness. He hides it away. And he's going to have some excuses for that when the master comes back to settle accounts. And so now the action continues with the return of the master after a long time, according to verse 19. He comes home to settle accounts. Now, at this point, you've got to imagine that the first two servants are pretty excited about the master coming home, right? He left them in the one case with five and the other with two, and they've doubled the amount of money that he left them. I think if we were in their shoes, we would be pretty pumped for the master to come home. They are ready for his return because they want to show him the fruits of their labor. This is what you left me with. This is what I did with it. Look at what I've done. There is a gladness and an eagerness, not only to be working, but to receive the master back. And the faithful servants, uh, they, re they are uh, greeted with a threefold reward. I want you to look at the rewards given to the faithful ones. The first reward is praise. Praise for their faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. He rewards them with praise. Second, he gives them more responsibility. He says, since you were faithful over a little, I'm going to set you over much. So an increased stewardship is the second reward. And third, he invites them into his joy. Basically, come share my happiness. So the faithful servants have gone out with eagerness. They've worked with diligence. And their threefold reward is praise, more to steward, and a share in the master's happiness. Now the third servant. We knew something was amiss with the third servant from the description of his work. You've got one that turns five to ten, you've got one that turns two to four, and the third one does not turn one to two. He turns one into one by digging a hole in the ground and hiding it there. We don't know how long the master has been gone, it, it says a long time. Apparently it was long enough for the first two servants to double the master's money, which we've already seen would have required an amount of work, diligence, eagerness, hard work. It apparently does not take much time or much diligence to dig a hole in the ground and bury a talent in it because the master is about to rebuke this one for his laziness. He failed as a steward 
And to make matters worse, he starts blaming the master for his behavior. Just like Adam and Eve in Eden, covered in fig leaves, blaming God and each other for their sins, the third servant blames his own faithless stewarding on the master. I know you're a harsh guy, you take what doesn't belong to you, and I was afraid. I'm afraid of you. It's, it's almost like he's saying, I figured I would be in more trouble if I took what you gave me and lost it. So I figured the, the safest thing I could do was disobeying you by burying it in the ground. I didn't gain anything by being a good steward. I mean, you entrusted this to me for a reason. I realized, you know, I didn't do that, but hey, I didn't lose it either. That's got to count for something, right? And in the midst of this, he has the audacity to call the master a thief. You reap where you don't sow. You gather where you haven't planted. This is on you, master. I did what I could. And unsurprisingly, the master is not very pleased with this report. The faithful servants had this threefold reward where each increased praise to more stewardship to a share in the master's happiness. Now we have a threefold punishment for the wicked servant that is going to increase in severity. So the first thing he's done, instead of being praised with words, is rebuked with words. He's called wicked and lazy, wicked and slothful, instead of good and faithful. The second thing is, rather than being given more to steward, what he had to begin with is taken away. So loss of stewardship, rather than gaining more stewardship. And third, rather than being brought in to share the master's happiness, he's cast out into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Contextually, we need to remember where we are. We're talking about readiness for last things, for the return of Christ. So final judgment, hell, are in view here in this parable. The third servant is going to go out with slothfulness, walk in wickedness, and end with rebuke, loss, and condemnation. He is the exact opposite of the two faithful ones. Let's consider some things about this wicked servant. The first thing is we need to recognize that his, his poor stewardship is not simply a problem of inactivity. It's moral bankruptcy. He's not just called slothful. He's called wicked and slothful. So it's clear, based on the judgment pronounced on him, that the intention of the master was for the servants to be both faithful and fruitful with his money. And this servant was neither. He was neither faithful nor fruitful. And he has the audacity, the nerve, to lay the blame for it on the master for his own sin. I think it's right to read um, verse 26 as sarcasm from the master. The master says, I think, sarcastically, well, if that's how I am, if that's what you think of me, well, you should have at least invested my money with the bankers or, or the exchangers, your Bible might say, so I could have at least had a little interest, gotten what was my own with interest. He did not even do that. Not even the smallest amount of effort to be faithful and fruitful with what he had been left with. He took the easy way out, he neglected his stewardship, and now judgment has come. He's rebuked, he loses everything, and he's cast out. The wickedness and the laziness go hand in hand because he's tried to conceal his own lazy disobedience by discrediting the master. The parable ends in verses 29 to 30. And this is where Jesus tells us the point. Don't, don't miss this, because this is how Jesus summarizes the point of this parable. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The faithful ones are rewarded with even more. The master's approval. More of the master's possessions to steward and a share in the master's joy. But the unfaithful only experience loss. They lose the master's praise. They are rebuked. They lose the stewardship they had to begin with. And they lose the master's presence and blessing. There is gain for faithfulness and fruitfulness. There is only loss for slothful wickedness. 
that sets up the, the action of this parable. We've understood what's going on contextually. We've gone through the action to see what it says. Let's dig in uh, for our main points of application as we see what these things mean for us. The first thing I want us to see in verses 14 to 23 is that God enables, expects, and rewards faithful kingdom work. God enables, expects, and rewards faithful kingdom work. The first thing he does is enable it. Remember, these are servants. These are slaves. All of the things that they have entrusted to them are a stewardship. They don't own anything. They are, by definition, owned by the master. Every ounce of treasure left in their hands belongs not to them, but to him. It was his wealth exclusively. He's going out, and he's expecting a return on his investment. We are not, as God's people, his employees working for a paycheck that we keep and use at our discretion. The Bible calls us stewards. The very nature of good stewardship is to be faithful with whatever it is we've been entrusted with for the sake of one, one who, the one who owns it. And we talked this morning a little bit in our building block, um, and I said then, and I'll, I'll say now, that I tend to cling very tightly with a closed fist around things that I consider to be my own. And I think, if you're honest, you probably do the same thing. The more that you consider something to be yours, the more possessive you and I are of those things. Whether it's our time, whether it's money, whether it's opportunities we have, we cling tightly to things, sinfully so, when we consider them to be ours exclusively. And on the other hand, how liberating it is for us to be reminded that Nothing that I am stewarding is actually mine. That all of it belongs to the Lord. That worldview will change everything about what you think about possessions, what you think about time, what you think about relationships, what you think about church. Anything and everything in this world that might be considered possessed, a possession, is ultimately not ours. It's the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness of Thereof. So we can be generous with time and treasures, and we will be cheerfully only when we see that everything that we have comes from and belongs to God and not to us. Even the righteousness required to enter his kingdom comes from him. Jesus earned that by his righteous life, and he credits it to us by faith, not by works. So God graciously gives us everything we need to enter his kingdom, to live in it, to please him, to do his work. He enables kingdom work. The second thing is that God expects faithful kingdom work. That's implicit in the parable as the master has entrusted these slaves with money and then he holds them accountable for what they do with it, for their faithfulness and their fruitfulness. And I've used those terms a lot this morning and will continue to. I don't think it's possible for us to separate the ideas of faithfulness to God and fruitfulness for God. These two things go hand in hand and the parable illustrates that. Think about a parable like the parable of the soils. What does good soil do? Good soil produces good fruit. And granted, it comes in varying amounts, just like the servants here have varying levels of ability, but fruit will always be produced in the good soil of a true believer. Where there is faith, there will, by God's grace, be fruitfulness. Jesus said as much. He said, whoever abides in him and he in them are those that bear much fruit. If you are in Christ, the Spirit is at work producing fruit. What is that fruit? Well, one facet of the Holy Spirit producing fruit in us is in godly character. We talked about this a little bit last week with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is personal holiness. Virtues wrought in us through the work of the Spirit that are pleasing to God. Christian character is one aspect of fruitfulness. On the other hand, in Matthew 3, John the Baptist connects bearing fruit for God with repentance from sin. The Spirit convicts us of sin, and He reminds us of the truth of Christ, and He presses the Word of God onto us. And through that, God, 
excuse me, God's kindness leads us to repentance. So the posture of the Christian is one who is ever repenting of sin, turning our backs on sin, and seeking to keep in step with the Spirit who produces in us the fruit of obedience. So repentance of sin on one hand and the pursuit of righteousness on the other are like two sides of the same coin, which are fruits that the Spirit produces. That is one aspect of spiritual fruit. But I want you to look at a passage like 2 Peter 1, 5-9 and see that fruitfulness from the Spirit does not end there. Those verses say, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's clear that fruitfulness doesn't stop with repentance of sin and personal holiness. They actually enable us, keep us from being unfruitful for Jesus. See that. Fruitfulness doesn't stop with repentance and righteousness. It enables more fruitfulness. The fruits of repentance and righteousness enable us to be fruitful in another way. And that's what we're going to focus a lot of our time on today, bearing fruit in the good work of disciple-making. To get at the heart of this, you can flip over, if you want to, just a couple chapters. We're nearing the end of Matthew, uh, to Matthew 28. And Jesus is about to embark on his own journey, right? We're on the other side of the cross. Jesus has been crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and he is going to ascend to the Father and send the Spirit into the world to equip his people for his mission. And he's leaving his servants behind to steward his assets while he's gone, to use terms from our parable today. So if you look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, what we commonly call the Great Commission... Jesus first says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Translation, Jesus is the master. We are the servants. Jesus has all authority. Secondly, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There is the stewardship. There is the trust. I have left you here to be faithful for this task, the task of making disciples. Obey Jesus yourself and teach others to do likewise. That's the trust. That's the stewardship. Lastly, Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Wait a minute. We have been talking for weeks on end, reading parable after parable, and the common thing in all of those parables is that somebody is not present, right? Somebody has left and gone away. The groom is delayed. The master is gone on a long journey. And now, Jesus in Matthew 28 says, I'm sticking around. I'm always going to be with you. So which is it? Is he staying or is he going? And the answer, of course, is yes. He is staying and he is going. Jesus is not physically present on the earth right now. We all recognize that. Jesus ascended to the Father and for some 2,000 years has been ruling and reigning from heaven at the right hand of the Father. He is seated. His work of atonement is complete. He is not physically present here now. He is not present with us in that sense. So how is it that Jesus in Matthew 28, on the verge of leaving, no less, will say, I will always be with you. I'm sticking around. I'm not going anywhere. I think in my own life, and and maybe yours too, certainly true for me, there has been a, a neglect of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Jesus said in John 16 that it is to our advantage that he went away and sent the Spirit. i got to tell you, sometimes I struggle to believe that. I think we all, and rightfully so, long for the return of Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. He has left in us a desire for us to be with him. That is good. A desire and a longing for Christ's return is good and pleasing to God. But while we wait, 
Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And there is a helper, there is a comforter coming who is going to do all manner of good things in your life. It is Jesus' Spirit that we receive. It's to our advantage that Jesus went away and sent the Spirit because we experience more of the fullness of God, not less of the fullness of God, not by Jesus never leaving, but by Jesus sending the Spirit to us. The same Spirit that filled Jesus and empowered His life of godly perfection has come to dwell in us now and empower us as disciple-makers. There is no church without the Holy Spirit. There is no Bible without the Holy Spirit. The Gospel does not go forward. People will not be saved without the Holy Spirit. You do not know yourself to be a sinner apart from the Holy Spirit. You do not know Jesus to be the only Savior apart from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's seal on us who guarantees our inheritance in Christ. The only hope that you and I have that when Jesus returns, he will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of you wicked and lazy servant, is because the Holy Spirit is the breath in your lungs, the strength in your hands, and the desire in your heart to love and obey Jesus. That is it. If he is not there, we are all the third servant burying talents in the ground, awaiting only his condemnation. The Spirit works in us to produce fruit to the glory of God. Good works in Jesus' name for Jesus' sake. He enables us to love God, to love our neighbors, to see more people made into and matured as disciples. That's the fruit he's after. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Don't minimize, don't ignore, don't neglect the work of his Spirit doing that in you. That is precisely what he does. He glorifies Jesus in us. Let's get practical for a minute. What does all this mean for us? You know, we're talking about talents. We're talking about enormous sums of money. Is this a parable only about how we manage our money? Uh, No, I think the answer to that is no, it's not. But let's start with money. Let's start with material talents like money. However much or however little you have, then if it's not yours and it's not mine, if it's a stewardship, then we have been left with money to use it for kingdom intentions, to steward it for the sake of God's glory in disciple-making. Whether you have $100 in your bank account or $10,000 in your bank account, anywhere in between, less than or more than that, it is there for your purposes in glorifying God through disciple-making. So steward it wisely, give it generously, give it cheerfully, When you're united united to Jesus and his body, it transforms the way you think about money. We made a plug for Bob's class already starting next week, and I'll do it again. Personal finance and the way we think about it is completely transformed by a worldview that says, nothing I have is mine. Everything is the Lord's. If the truths of the gospel, if the claims of the gospel are valid and true, that will transform everything we think about material things. So money can be an example of a talent, but certainly the applications don't end there. Speaking of church-related things, I was having a conversation with a friend this week about the church that he's a member of, and I said, oh yeah, you go to so-and-so's church, referring to the pastor. You go to his church. And as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I knew something was wrong. And I had to stop myself and say, no, it's not so-and-so's church. It's Jesus's church. Do we get that? This body is Jesus's church. That in and of itself will transform everything we think about ministry here, about the assets that the Lord has entrusted us with, because they do not belong to us. This is Jesus's church. He said, I will build my church. The people are his, the facilities are his, the ministries are his, the praise and glory are his. We don't get to tell Jesus We have some stuff here, and this is what we plan to use it, and we would appreciate you blessing that. No, we say, God, give us wisdom in using the things that you have entrusted to us for your glory and disciple-making. That's it. What about where you live, your home? Whether it's a dorm room or a mansion... We're commanded to be hospitable. Have your neighbors over. Get to know them. Care for them. Talk to people in your home about the gospel. Have church members over. Disciple a young person in your living room. Christian homes are not meant to be hideaway hobbit holes for our private enjoyment. Open the door to those around you. Plates may get cracked 
in the process. That's why we use paper plates when we host people. <laughs> but guess what? The plates belong to Jesus too. Start a small group in your house. Open your home to people. It is impossible to open your life to people and do the, the work of disciple making if you do not open your door to them. Your life is closed to your neighbors if your door is closed to them. And I've got to tell you, I struggle here. If you hear groaning and see eye rolling coming from this general vicinity right here, it's because my wife and kids will be the first to tell you that I value neatness and orderliness. Is anybody like me out there? When I'm stressed, I clean and organize. When I'm happy, I clean and I organize. When I'm sad, I clean and organize. I'm quite domesticated, actually. I'm, I'm a prize, I think, sometimes. Um, <laughs> That is, that is not inherently sinful, okay? Hear me on that. Valuing cleanliness and orderliness is not a sin inherently. When it becomes sin for me is when I idolize that to the point of no one, my family or neighbors or anybody else, being able to enter my home lest they tear down my idol of spotlessness. The ultimate goal has to be making our homes conducive to disciple-making, Steward it well. Clean it, sure. Organize it. That's fine. But disciple-making is the goal, not spotlessness. What about marriage? If you're married, the relationship is not yours. It's a signpost pointing to Jesus and his gospel. When a husband loves his wife and sacrifices himself for her, he says, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what marriage does. It takes the attention off husband and wife and points to Jesus, the bridegroom. When a husband lovingly submits to her husband, she's saying, Jesus is the head of the church. She's taking the attention off of herself and saying, no, it's Jesus. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He is in charge. He is the master. Marriage is meant to do that as husband and wife are discipled and sharpened through that relationship. And it proclaims the gospel outside of the marriage. What about children? Stewardship recognizes that children aren't my kids. There's arrows in my quiver so that I can sharpen them and shoot them out for God's purposes and glory, not my own. They aren't mine. If you're a parent, the Great Commission begins at home. Make disciples of your children. And whether you've got kids or not, it's easy to tune out stuff on marriage and parenting if that's not where you are in life now, but hear me for a second. The parents in this church need your help. Whether you have children or not, whether you are married or not, the husbands and wives and parents in this church need your help. We need you to pray for us. We need you to encourage us, to love us and our kids, to show us what a maturing love for Jesus looks like. We need you to build us up so that we can do our jobs well as parents. We need you to correct us when we mess up and when we fail. There are so many people in this church who do not have children who have loved my kids and pointed them to Jesus. You do not have to be a parent, you do not have to be married to pour into the marriages and families of this congregation. Every member of this body needs every member of this body. There is a special responsibility that falls on older, more mature Christians to do this. You might need to seek out somebody today, a younger person, who needs to be brought along in the faith. The first step of obedience for some of you might, today might be just introducing yourself to a younger person. Take them out to lunch. Have a cup of coffee with them. Those are some material, tangible examples of talents. Money, homes, family, relationships, whatever. There could be talents that are immaterial, intangible, like skills, like literally the English word talents. Things that you are skilled with could be a talent in this sense. It could be opportunities you have. It could be knowledge you have. It could be influence that you have uniquely. Access to people like your own family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. It includes your spiritual gifts, how you're equipped to serve the body. It could be teaching a Sunday school class. It could be rocking a baby. It could be changing a light bulb, changing a diaper, anything you can think of in service to the church is faithful kingdom work when you do it out of love for God, out of love for your brothers and sisters, to see people grow in the gospel. We need your gifts. You're not a spectator. You're a member of a body. When arms and legs are cut off, when they're not working, the whole body hurts. So think about the intangible talents in your life and how they're being multiplied in the lives of other people. 
Lastly, the Lord rewards faithful service. In verses 21 and 23, the master praises the faithful servants with a reward. Whose praise are you working for? Too often I fear people and I seek their praise, but the master praises the faithful servants. It's God's praise and approval we need to live for. That will free us from the fear of man and that alone will set us on the course of joyful obedience. Fear of man will never produce joyful obedience to the Lord. Secondly, they get set over even more. Now, something may be proverbially true about being faithful with something in this life and getting more of that thing in this life. So there's the idea that if I'm faithful with my money, God will give me more money. If I'm faithful in my marriage, we will never have conflict. We will always get along, right, Rebecca? And things will just go swimmingly. We'll never have issues. Or kids, right? If I'm faithful as a parent, then my kids will all trust in Jesus. They will all be faithful. They will never struggle. They will never wander. Are those promises that God makes to us as faithful stewards? No. Faithful spouses sometimes have one who leaves. Faithful parents have prodigals that don't return. Faithful money managers might lose it all. The rewards that we're looking to are not in this life. There may, may be some proverbially true things about that, but that is not the reward that's in view here and therefore not the reward that we are to be looking for. Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. The third reward is the greatest of them all. Enter into my joy and happiness. There's a treasure in Christ that is the greatest reward of all. Those who treasure Christ now are the only ones who enjoy him forever. I'll say it again. It's those who treasure Christ now who are the only ones who will enjoy him forever. That is the greatest reward. It's not the praise. It's not more to do. Those are wonderful rewards that we are promised. But the greatest of them all is being with Jesus in his joy. That's what we're looking forward to. We're going to move through the second point rather quickly. I know tummies are grumbling and, and we're ready to get out of here. God condemns, condemns wicked slothfulness. He condemns wicked slothfulness. Remember that the third servant has buried the talent in the ground and then he blames the master for it. Sin does that. We become blamers. Adam blamed God and Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. It's, it's like those uh, it's what you do commercials. Have you heard those? If you're a sinner, you blame other people. It's what you do. That's how sin operates. It causes us to blame those around us. The wicked servant was lazy, and he thought discrediting God was a valid excuse and the way to salvation. The very thing that he thought would be his salvation proved to be his undoing. He laid the blame for his own sins at the master's feet. Sinners do this. We blame God for our problems and our shortcomings and our sins. Notice the threefold condemnation. Rebuke, loss, and hell. Why do you think the wicked servant buried the money? I thought about that as I was preparing the sermon. Why did he do that? He, we know the excuse he gave, right? I was afraid. I know you're a harsh master. I think the reason that he buried the money is because he doesn't know the master at all. I think the biggest problem this man has is he does not know his master. Is his master harsh? No. The parable is teaching us the master is kind and generous. The ones who eagerly obeyed him received extravagantly generous rewards. The one who doesn't know the master is the one making excuses to hide his disobedience. The ones that know and love the master eagerly obey him. They are glad to show him the fruits of their labor and they receive his reward. There is a theme, like an undercurrent, running through this section in Matthew in these parables of knowledge. You go back a couple weeks, we saw only the Father knows when the Son is returning. Last week in the parable of the ten virgins, what did the groom say to the foolish ones? I do not know you. Here the wicked servant truly does not know the Master. That is the definition of being lost. Not knowing Jesus and not being known by Jesus is the definition of lostness. If that is you, you're on the outside of the wedding feast looking in and the doors are about to close. You are about to be on the receiving end of his just condemnation. You may be calling him Lord and Master, but the only thing awaiting you is the weeping and gnashing teeth of hell. And so that may beg the question, 
if you are not a Christian, well, didn't, didn't he say all this stuff about God being generous? Didn't he say all this stuff about God being kind? I think the third servant may be right. I mean, he sends people to hell. That's, that seems pretty harsh, right? I mean, a spanking when a timeout would have done just fine seems reasonable, right? It seems a little harsh. The belief that God is a hard master comes from a heart that does not know the holiness of God or the horrors of sin. If you minimize one or the other, you will minimize them both, and then hell sounds pretty unfair. The Bible teaches, however, that God is completely holy and perfectly righteous, that he is completely and perfectly just, and he will punish sin. By nature and by choice, we, on the other hand, are all sinners, deserving of every ounce of his just wrath. If you get that, then you see that hell is not unfair. Quite the opposite. Hell is what every single one of us deserves. Nothing could be more fair than hell. But God is kind. God is merciful. He is generous. How can all of these things be true? To put it another way, how can God be just and justify sinners? How does he do that? The answer to that, of course, is the gospel. This is the gospel that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He is just, and he is a justifier. Think of it this way. Jesus took the talents of his own divine nature, the power of the Holy Spirit, and his love for the Father, and what did he do? He used them to live a life of sinless perfection on our behalf. He died so that we might live. What's the fruit of that? The fruit of Jesus' joyful obedience to God is that he is bringing many sons to glory. To put, another, put it another way, Jesus' talents make disciples. And so then it makes sense that he is sending us out to do the exact same thing. Everyone who repents of their sins and casts themselves on Jesus' mercy and faith will be saved. If you get that, if you truly get that, you are not going to run away from Jesus as if he were a fearful and harsh master. You will run into his arms where he will receive you. Jesus receives us in repentance with his kindness and compassion. Those who do that will find their ultimate happiness in obeying him and teaching others to do the same. But if you try to do that, Without love for Jesus, that work is vain and worthless. The work he's calling us to do is a work from faith, from joy in Christ our treasure, that produces a desire for disciple-making to the glory of God. If that doesn't describe you, the problem is not with your works. The problem is with your heart that doesn't treasure Christ above all things. Your works cannot please God apart from faith in him. If Christ is not your treasure, if you do not have joy in Christ now, there is no joy in Christ forever. This parable is aimed at people who call Jesus Lord, but do not do what he says. It's aimed at those who think Jesus is our master, but take their stewardship and bury it in the ground. What does it mean, as we begin to wrap up, to bury your talents in the ground? What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, we know from the parable that that is easy and it requires no effort. Burying your talents in the ground requires no effort whatsoever. If the fruit that the Spirit produces on one hand is repentance and Christian virtue, then not repenting of sin is burying your talent in the ground. Keeping in step with the Holy Spirit who is producing the fruits of righteousness, on the other hand, requires diligence. It requires work. We saw in Second Peter that we have to make every effort to grow in these Christian virtues. If we don't do that, if we aren't exerting effort for the purpose of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, then we are burying our talents in the ground. If fruitfulness consists of doing good works for the sake of seeing disciples made to the glory of God, then not making disciples is easy. Not sharing the gospel is easy. Not opening your home to your neighbors is easy. Not loving them is easy. Staying away from the body of Christ is easy. Forsaking the word of God in prayer is easy. To take the material and immaterial things in our lives and to use them for any other purpose other than disciple-making to the glory of God is to bury them in the ground and hide them away where there is only the fearful anticipation that we will be condemned for it. So think about your life. Think about the talents that you have and what you're doing with them. I think you should do that, continue to do that. 
But we've got to realize that doing is not the essence of the Christian life. Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 13 pretty clearly how you can do all manner of good things without love and they will gain you nothing. There will be no praise. There will be no more to steward. There will be no entering into the master's happiness if we do stuff without treasuring Christ. And it's clearly possible because Jesus himself says when he returns, there's going to be people who protest their own condemnation by saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Look at all of the stuff that we did. And Jesus doesn't argue with them over that. Do you realize that? He doesn't challenge them and say, no, you didn't. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Doing stuff in Jesus' name does not make one a Christian. And this sermon is not ultimately a call to do stuff for Jesus because that's not ultimately what he means even in this parable. It is a call to awaken all of us to realize that Jesus is the best treasure that we could have. He is the wellspring of all joy. His glory is worth more than everything there is. We do not because Jesus needs us to, not to earn a spot in his good graces, but because he loves us. We love because he first loves us. So the road that leads to everlasting joy in Jesus is paved with the good works that he's prepared for us. If we love him, we will walk that road, hard as it may be, with gladness. As we conclude, I want to tell you there's two big errors that I have wanted to avoid in this sermon, other than going for nearly an hour. The first big error is that I don't want anyone in here who is not a Christian to have false assurances that they are. If Jesus is not your treasure, then you are not in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, the solution is not doing more for Jesus. That is only going to inoculate you more to the gospel and make you think that your salvation is a matter of works. Ask yourself if Jesus is your treasure. And if he is not, then my hope for you, my prayer for you, and all the believers in here, is that you would repent of your sins, trust in Jesus alone to save you. He is the treasure in the field. And the way that we show that we value that treasure is a heart that says, I will give up anything and everything to have that. We want to talk to you about that. We want you to know Jesus as the greatest treasure you could ever have. We're all in the spot of the third servant apart from the grace of God through Christ. Every single one of us. If you are not treasuring Christ, we want to talk to you about the gospel. The other error I want to avoid is shattering the assurance of people who really are Christians and try to convince you that you're, that you're not. As a Christian, you will struggle with sin. Your walk will have highs and lows. I think it was last week, Michael told us to picture the Christian life like a good stock investment that trends upwards but may have highs and lows along the way. What if we zoom in on one of those lows for a minute? What do you do when you feel dry, when your joy in the Lord is stale, when you feel like you're going through the motions of the Christian life? What do you do with that? Do you decide, well, I guess I'm not a Christian after all. Maybe I used to be. I can tell there were times of fruitfulness and faithfulness in my past, but today I'm not feeling it, and therefore I must not be a Christian. I want to tell you, while I warn you to consider whether or not you were in the faith, that your faith is still valid even if you are in the valley. And I want to propose three things for you to do for those of you that are treasuring Christ, but his joy and joyful obedience is not presently describing you. First of all, first thing you need to do is recognize that the sins of joylessness and half-hearted obedience to Jesus were also paid for. He took those too. He knew them before you had them. He took them already. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Confess that to God. He promises forgiveness in Christ. Look at a psalm like Psalm 51 where there is salvation without joy that is restored through confession and repentance. Second of all, know that you're not alone. One of the horrible things about sin is that it makes us feel isolated. Your brothers and sisters here are going through the same stuff. I'm struggling as a parent. I'm struggling as a husband and a leader of my home. All of us are going through it. 
And we need each other. Put your arm around somebody and help them finish the race. That is the essence of discipleship, is it not? You're running a marathon and you're running it with your brothers and sisters. We've got to help each other finish. And lastly, we've got to know Jesus better. You've got to be in the word and in prayer every day because if you know Jesus and the more you know him, the better you know him, the more you will love him. And the more you love him, the more you will gladly obey him. And that is what we're after. That is the fruitfulness that we're after. Joyful obedience to Jesus until he returns. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Everything that you've been entrusted with, all the wonders and extravagant generosity of God that he has left you with now, your relationships, your time, your money, your assets, your influence, your gifts, the, it's a laundry list of things that will take our breath away if we just count our blessings. And Jesus says, that is just a little. It's just a little. You'll see the much when I'm coming back. We'll be like a little kid on Mother's Day spending her money to do something that will bring her joy. And because you love each other, that joy will be yours too. Let's pray. God, it's been good to be in your word today. Your word in the power of your Holy Spirit convicts us where we fall, comforts us where we are weak, builds us up, and we need that. And we need to minister that to others. We pray for the grace and faith and love and obedience to you that leads to disciple-making for your glory. That is why we are here. You have left us to do that work. And so we pray that you would find us faithful. Give us all the tools, all the talents that we need to do that. Enliven us through your spirit. Give us the power to do it. Be pleased to accomplish that. We know that the things that you have begun in us, you will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so we long for your praise. We long for you to call us good and faithful. We want to receive your approval. We're looking forward to the glories of heaven where there will be more to steward. Things that are beyond our imagination or comprehension now will be ours then because of our inheritance in Christ. Most of all, we want you. You are the treasure that our souls desire. We long for you. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen.